This is Marco Reus. This is Shinji Kagawa. This is Nuri Shahin. Hello, this is Jaden Sancho. And you're listening to the Yellow Wall podcast. Welcome to episode 388 of the Yellow Wall Pods. I'm your host Stefan Butzko and today we will talk about a dramatic 3-2 stoppage time win against TSG Hoffenheim, the UEFA Champions League group draw and of course we will discuss Borussia Dortmund's transfer window of the summer. Yay! For all that and more joins me Louis Ambrose. Hello Louis, it's great to have you back on the show. Long-time listeners will hopefully still remember you. At LGA Bros on Twitter, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm good, thank you. Very long time. It's, like, it's been ages since we spoke. I'm sorry, that's mostly my fault, I think. Yes, definitely. Who else would it be? So you have, well, to, yours. You have to 100% carry all the conversation and interaction between us. This would never be my fault at all. Well, then I am very, very sorry. <laughs> well, uh, don't be. In the meantime, we have a sponsor for this episode. Wir sind komplett schuldenfrei. Wir zahlen keinen einzigen Euro an Zinsen. And this episode is sponsored once again by the Borussia Dortmund Fan Club London podcast for the Borussia Dortmund perspective from the island that can be found at mcfadgian.podbean.com. Uh, they recently interviewed Sunday Olize, so check that out, old Dortmund legend. And of course, if you want to sponsor an episode, get a shout out or whatnot for your fan club or, you know, yourself, Twitter account, who knows, go to passion.com slash the for more information. But now, Lewis, I think it is time to talk about this. Marco Reus. Haaland stays on his feet. What a chance for Wolf! Mukoku! Haaland! <laughs> He's a cheat code! Three, two! Yeah, that was great. And <laughs> Lewis, you were in the stadium. I'm very jealous or envious. I don't know what's the right word here, but I'm sure uh, someone, someone will correct me. Uh, Lewis, you obviously are also from the UK. You are from London, but you live in Berlin and uh, you got tickets. I actually got asked today by someone how to get a ticket, maybe first before we talk about the game. What do you have to do to go to a Dortmund game these days where I think the capacity is kept at 25,000? Yeah, so the capacity at the moment is 25,000. As you know, the ultras aren't going to the games. A lot of fans, I think it's a bit of speculation on my part, but a lot of fans, season ticket holders are choosing not to go to games as long as there's no full stadium. Um, obviously season ticket holders from the Südtribüne are also used to standing and at the moment there's no standing in German stadiums so the tickets are more expensive than they usually would have to pay and you, the, the atmosphere obviously isn't quite the same with what in Dortmund less than half the stadium full um, and on top of that you have to have had both of your vaccine uh, jabs so you need to be fully vaccinated and have the two weeks passed after the second vaccination 
all recovered from um, coronavirus before you can go to a game. So there's already a bunch of people either disinclined to take up their option to have a ticket for the games at the moment or just not eligible, I guess. So at the moment, ticket season ticket holders um, get offered the first opportunity to collect I guess, or apply to have one of the 25,000 tickets. I think season ticket holders can actually apply for multiple tickets. Um, Then it goes to club members. And then both of the Bundesliga home matches so far for Dortmund actually went on general sale, which is something that hasn't happened before the pandemic for years um, that I know of in Dortmund for Bundesliga games. So I think that happened uh, against Frankfurt as well, that it went on general sale and then sold out pretty quickly. Um, that's what happened again here. We got tickets thanks to a season ticket um, of, a, of a friend. And yeah, so that's how we got tickets. But as members, we also could have picked up a couple of tickets a few days later. And then I think the general sale only started on Wednesday and the game was on Friday night. So obviously it's really short notice for people to try and organize. I mean, if you don't live in the area, then it's probably really hard by then to make sure you can travel all the way to Dortmund and uh, maybe even you need to get a hotel overnight for an evening game. So at the moment, tickets are kind of easier to get than they usually would be, but it's all kind of short notice and you have to scramble around for trains and hotels and that kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. So obviously these tickets are personalized, so you can't just walk up to a scalper randomly and buy your ticket. Uh, Actually, no. No, our tickets weren't personalized. Oh, they were um, not? Interestingly. Huh. No, I think, to my knowledge, they were personalized for the Frankfurt game um, with things like, you know, name, um, I think address as well, and, and maybe date of birth. So, you know, you had to take a piece of ID uh, for the Frankfurt match. But the game against Hoffenheim, I don't know if they've changed the policy or not, but the tickets weren't personalized. So even though we had to um, had to be vaccinated, um Someone at the stadium would, you know, in, in here in Germany, you have a, a, a QR code on your phone, like a, they call it kind of a, a vaccine passport, I guess. Um, and yeah, you that's can have socialism that on a, in the United States. We can't have that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in Germany, we have that on a, on, you can get it on a few different apps on your phone pretty much. Um, and there were a bunch of stewards outside the stadium and also in the middle of the city in the, in the different fan shops. And if you just told somebody that you were going to a game, going to the game, then you were given like, and then you, you showed them that you were vaccinated with, with your ID as well. So they knew it was definitely you and you didn't just have somebody else's phone or something. Um, then they gave you like a little wristband, like kind of like a paper wristband, like you get sometimes when you go to a concert and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, so we got these wristbands that said, uh, Borussia Dortmund v TSG Hoffenheim and the date. Um, on them and then you so you can't get in the stadium without having the wristband on okay yeah that, and the that's, that's interesting I, I just want I just wanted to know how uh, the process of actually getting into the physical stadium works nowadays yeah because uh, like that um, and then you get given time slots um, so there's not too much of a crush at a certain time too many people I guess gathered all at once outside the stadium or, or just going inside so you get given time slots that you can go into the stadium. I think it's like a 15-minute slot um, in the, the couple of hours before the match. Um, but for this, for the Hoffenheim game, and I think the I think every home game at the moment, they also say like if you arrive 
kind of before any of the time slots begin, then anybody can come in already. Um, so for for last Friday, it was the kickoff was 8.30 p.m. in Germany, and between 6 and 7, you could go in. Uh, we did that because our time slot wasn't until like 8 p.m., and the first time being in the stadium for oof, like 18 months, uh, we wanted to be inside nice and early and, you know, cheering the players onto the pitch and that kind of thing and not worrying about climbing the stupid number of stairs you have to climb sometimes <laughs> in, in such a huge stadium, um, you know, and rushing to our seats and, and getting a, a drink or something to eat, um, you know, may, maybe missing the you'll never walk alone and things like that. So we went in there a bit earlier. We, we were just we traveled in from Berlin and had nothing to do in Dortmund yeah, anyway. The old 1 p.m. So, time slot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty much um so yeah we uh we went in a little bit earlier and well, i mean it wasn't crazy early still an hour and a half an hour before the game so plenty of time to relax and have a chat with with friends that you've not seen for a while at the stadium and then watch the players come out and warm up and soak everything up after yeah missing out on it for so long yeah uh I really, I really have the itch to be in a stadium. I, I must say, obviously, uh, all my uh, last visits over the the years, I used to go to the stadium were obviously all uh, with a with a press ticket, so uh, I wasn't really uh, among fans, to be honest. But it was uh, it was frowned upon if you got up and started shouting things and things like that. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> so you don't really have the time to do that when you're sitting there. I'll be honest, but. Uh, uh i don't i don't know there there are a lot of uh fans that are journalists or vice versa to be honest so um it's not that frowned upon but uh yeah uh, let's just let's just say there's no uh press box capo <laughs> 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 if you know oh if there were press box wi-fi that uh that already would suffice but uh, as per usual there's not enough of that but uh, you know, since you're sponsored by One and One, uh, you wouldn't expect anything like that. <laughs> anyway, uh, so before I completely go off on a completely irrelevant tangent, um, Lewis, it was a really interesting game—a five-goal thriller. All of those five goals coming in the second half. Uh, <laughs> hashtag set pieces was very much trending for a minute or so before Haaland completely evaporated that. But uh, let's start. At the beginning, I guess, uh, we had Meunier back in the starting lineup. We had uh, Rafael Guerrero back in the starting lineup. Uh, Emre Can and Mats Hummels, after getting a, about a 10-minute run out, uh, basically died uh, in, in Freiburg and uh, are now injured for, uh, I don't know, I think for Hummels it's uh, at least the international break and for Can it's, uh, I think, several weeks, five to six or so. Other, other than that, I don't think too many changes were made, right? We had uh, Rayner and Bellingham as the number eights. We had Dahoud as number six, if you will, and then Marco Reus as the number ten behind Marlin and Haaland. And uh, as far as I recall, since it's uh, Wednesday and uh, this game happened on Friday, uh, I think Dortmund had a better first half than second half in terms of game control and dominance, but uh, there were not that many chances. I think the very first one actually came from Hoffenheim where uh was it Kramaric who headed the ball to the post sort of in in, in yeah, contention in the first with, couple with of minutes. Yeah. 
Yeah, which, you know, is not the start that I guess anybody was hoping for or looking for. Um, but I agree with you. Like, after that, I thought Dortmund in the first half were, I wouldn't say, like, brilliant or anything, but really, really good, completely in control pretty much of the game. And it was always just the the last pass or the last run. Things weren't quite timed right or the pass had too much weight on it. And and ran through to Oliver Bauman in goal, but other than that, I I don't think there was too much. Even though there were people in the ground complaining, um, as per usual, because you know that's what that's what fans do when the team isn't three or four nil up within twenty minutes. Um, I I thought the first half was actually pretty good. I was a little bit surprised seeing some of the players. I think Jude Bellingham after the game saying that they struggled and he thought that they played better in Freiburg. I thought they played a lot better um, in the, or at least definitely in the first half against Hoffenheim. And it was a little bit unfortunate probably to not create the the one big chance that, that a goal could come from. So yeah, I agree with you. I thought that the team looked pretty much in control. I thought Donja Marlin looked a lot better. It's, it's only his second start, so it's really early days still. But I thought he looked a lot, lot better and a lot more ready than well, he looked be honest, in Freiburg. Well, he, he looked completely awful in Freiburg. And yeah, okay. When you yeah, so when when you put it like that in in the uh, there was in a the, certain bar that was really low. Cameos in Frankfurt and the Super Cup, he was also not really doing anything. So, uh, yeah, the low bar, uh, the, the bar was very low, but nevertheless, I thought uh, this was way more promising, really. Uh, you know, where you, you were like, ah, we actually now do see why Dortmund did sign this guy. Exactly. Exactly. Right? Um, yeah, and I, I thought that was really encouraging. And yeah, it's still, as, as low as the bar was, it's also still really early days and the guy didn't have any preseason or anything like that either. So... I think it's, there was a really promising, encouraging performance against the team that's played really well this season so far as well. Um, yeah, so on the whole, I would personally went into halftime or like through the first half thinking that it was probably all going to end pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I spent the first half very much like the people around you in the stadium uh, picking on players. Just like in private, obviously, <laughs> uh, my number one target was Girena because I thought his uh, decision making in the first half was not that great. Uh, I felt like once again he he dribbled when he should have passed, and vice versa. It's, you know, all these little things, the, the little details that uh, uh, if you focus too much on it, you actually quite get annoyed by it. Uh, but obviously, he was then uh, uh, the the player to uh, open the scoring for Dortmund, and it was a really nice. Goal, obviously, it was his, uh, I think, his 50th Bundesliga match or something like that. And setting a record, uh, obviously, also uh, <laughs> being being the youngest to have 50 uh, games since Christian Pulisic. Who else? So, and Mokoko Ayes, who will maybe be the next <laughs> one to break that record. Is that is that like a record when it's like the youngest since something that happened like two years ago? Yes, it is, because the Bundesliga is, uh, what, 50, how many years uh, of Bundesliga history do we have? So, uh, it's still 58 impressive. 58 now, I think, 59. Yeah, sometime, whatever. Uh, who's counting? Someone, not me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, I thought the goal was really well ta taken, and of course, the assist came by Jude Bellingham, and um, Lewis... 
I think he needs to be a topic of conversation uh, for I don't know how many minutes, but um, I am more impressed than I thought I was going to be by Jude Bellingham so far this season because he is not only doing a lot of smart things on the field, especially in the ball winning and distribution department, but now he's also taking on players more than usual. You see a couple of stepovers and... Uh, a player that is not only full of confidence, but actually uh, dominating in areas where I did not anticipate him dominating. Uh, obviously, it's always nice to see a player like this play on TV, but when you're in the stadium, you usually see it even better. I think Shinji Kagawa is the number one player uh, you would rather watch in the stadium than on TV, because what he did, you could see so much better always in the stadium than uh, than on TV. So... um. Do you think I have a point here by saying that Jude Bellingham right now is uh, extremely, extremely on his scent? Yeah, I think think we already saw it last year sometimes, but now you're seeing just how crazy the potential is for him. He can he can do everything. He can do everything you want from a midfielder. He can he could he could play further back and kind of start moves and sweep in front of the defense and he could play this box-to-box role he could play further forward and create more chances and it's kind of crazy that this guy just turned 18 no um and he just already is just there in one of the biggest clubs in the world in one of the most competitive leagues in the world and there's you can't pick a flaw in his game really um the way that, like you said, he drives with the ball. There was this great scene in the second half when he fell over um, towards the corner and fell over and then just sort of, I don't even know how to describe it. Like he was breakdancing around the ball while on the floor to make sure the defender couldn't get to it and then got up and turned and beat another defender and um, I think, I think you know, ran it into the corner and, and won a corner in the end from it. Um and in the stadium, I think more than more than Shinji Kagawa, who's the kind of player where you kind of, I think in the stadium, you can see what he's thinking because you can see everything else around him. And you could see back then like the cogs ticking and why he made all of the decisions that he made or, or what he was seeing or, or the spaces that were opening up and why he was moving into them. I think Bellingham in the stadium is a player that you get like, maybe not more understanding for the way he's playing, but he, you get really carried away watching him. Like he, he takes you with him um, while he's playing. It's unbelievable that this kind of technical player who can, you know, drive from, from one end of the pitch to the other, but also has this ability to thunder into tackles, that kind of thing that fans love. It, and I think him as well as a, as a personality is, gonna absolutely love the stadium being firstly now with fans again and then being full again i think he's gonna feed off of that so much but also sometimes when a game's not going so well especially and the crowd gets a bit quiet you need a player to do something to give the fans something to feed off of and i think he's going to be that player on so many occasions for for dortmund over the next few years yeah uh it's it's really hard uh to to realize that he is one of the players that has never played in front of Salt Out Dortmund Stadium. You know, you people make a similar case for Thomas Meunier, but of course he has already played uh with PG there uh and had that experience. 
but Bellingham really, uh, yeah, never had this eighty thousand, you know, people of screaming at the top of their lungs, sort of. Yeah, and I think it, I think it was a pretty big reason for him to choose to come to Dortmund as well. Um, yeah, you can like, definitely I know see how he, went, he feeds off it. You know, he also yeah, when he's like, there, I, he, he I know interacts he with the to, crowd. I know he went to the stadium at least once, um, as a not as a fan, but like when the club was trying to woo him, if you like. Um, and I know that he went to to the stadium at least once and it was full. And it, obviously there was something there that day that helped convince him that he wanted to be on the pitch and, and not in the stands when there were 80,000 people there. And yeah, it's all of those players, it's such a huge shame for them that they haven't got used to or, or had the, the experience of playing in front of a full stadium. I mean, Erling Haaland is so obviously a guy that absolutely loves getting that attention and the adulation and I think Bellingham yeah is another one that will completely feed off of that and who knows you, like you, you just mentioned Thomas Munier who I think was quite poor again on on Friday in you know there are difficult circumstances with him especially at the moment with having had a coronavirus and, and been ill a little bit but some of these players we have no idea and maybe it, it gives them something extra when they do get to play in front of 80,000 people. Yeah, uh, Munier, I think, struggled really in the opening 10, 15 minutes or so. I think he got better as the game progressed, to be honest. And that's how, how you sort of expect it. But boy, uh, <laughs> you know, for for a player that's already uh, not, uh, you know, the absolute fan favorite, it doesn't really help. <laughs> so No, I, I don't know if you saw the interview with him that Dortmund put on YouTube. Uh-huh. Yeah, and... I don't know how you felt about that, but I felt really, um, I don't know, like I... I built like, a lot of sympathy always... for him in this interview. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like it was the most, I've seen him speak, I think, really since he joined. And it was the most, like I could, you could really identify with, with the struggle that he's had, especially the last the last month or so. Um, yeah, but so, not, not, not to yeah. go to 10,000 foot view right away, but I feel like Dortmund need to do stuff like that way more often because usually you get little clips here and there, but this was like how how many minutes? Seven, six or so? It was a coherent interview with actually um, some interesting questions and uh, it, it got very personal and uh, especially um, players that are from abroad that you usually don't hear too much from in interviews or whatnot, be it in Kicker or Sportbild or wherever, or I really think Dortmund need to, as a club, just, you know, get way more access to these players and, and you know, make a connection to the fans, uh, because otherwise it's going to be always difficult. And uh, mm -hmm. we, we don't have that very often, you know. How many times do you hear actually the thoughts of, say, Rafael Guerrero? You know what's going on in his in his life or in his thoughts, etc. You know, you just you're not really a witness of that, and I feel like that's just uh, wasted by Dortmund. So uh, and and like you say, as a fan, it gives you something extra. You know, that's something to relate to, and and it just again, like it, it's a. I mean, that's a really big conversation, but it just humanizes the players so much, and players that you know we all watch the games and sometimes someone might piss you off and maybe it's the same player four weeks in a row that pisses you off and then you're pissed off the next time just because you see his name in the lineup and not even because he's playing um and i think there's been kind of the situation with munier after a disappointing first season 
and then you see like some of the like the abusive stuff online and stuff i just think yeah if we saw that human side of the players a little bit more and then that stuff wouldn't happen so much because you know it just reminds us that they're people as well that are going through stuff all the time just you know that all of this money doesn't make all of that shit go away yeah, definitely, you're, you're right. I mean, we really have to put our hopes on Thomas Meunier this season because Dortmund didn't really uh, do much on the right-back position, I think. Felix Passag so far struggled immensely. And uh, I I think, uh, you know, may, maybe we'll, we'll get more of uh, Wolf, who we can talk about in a second. But, um, yeah, I, I, I really like the first half a little bit better just from the footballing standpoint because after halftime and maybe we can focus our attention a little bit it was actually Hoffenheim right out of the gate that uh, dictated play and uh, I thought okay uh, either Dortmund will sucker punch them or they will just back for a goal uh, to an extent where they will concede and uh, sort of both things happened because when Dortmund did score, it was really against the run of play. Uh, if you just saw the first half, um, not that the lead overall wasn't deserved. I think it was very much deserved. And the goal that Dortmund did create was a really well uh, created goal. I don't know who got the pre-assist. Might have been Royce or so. But uh, yeah, uh, the uh, the very vertical ball by Bellingham and then the way Giorena uh, managed to slot at home uh, beating sort of two defenders and it was a really, really well taken strike um, that that was such a nice goal to score but obviously uh, Lewis talked me through a bit how Dortmund just lost grip of the, the game <laughs> <laughs> around that goal until uh, I think it was Baumgartner scoring in the 61 minute which, which was also a very well crafted goal uh, Not don't get me wrong how uh, uh, you know, Guerrero was pulled out of defense and then uh, the pass played in his back. It was really nice, but uh, how did Hoffenheim manage to uh, become the better team for a good period in the second half slash Dortmund relinquish the dominance they had? Yeah, I mean, and like you already said, the Hoffenheim being on top didn't just come after Dortmund scoring the the first goal, but it was already the the five minutes before that since uh, since the break at halftime when Hoffenheim were on top. I, I think they played a lot more aggressively, and well, I mean not aggressively because in the first half some of the tackles were <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, Baumgartner's elbow right into Witzel's face in the first yeah, minute. Yeah, in like the first 10 seconds of the game, Yeah, giving Axel Witzel a black eye. Dahoud uh, thought he should have, um, there should have been a, a red card, I think on Dennis Geiger for a tackle against him. Um, in an interview after the game, he said that, you know, that he kind of pulled out of the challenge and it could have been a lot worse if he didn't. Um, yeah, I, I thought Hoffenheim would incredibly rough and an aggressive straight out of the blocks but in the second half I thought there was a little bit more organization to it like not playing aggressively physically aggressively but with more intensity and Dortmund found it really hard suddenly to to get out of their own half it's really hard to keep control of the ball and control of possession and were also just a bit more open to counter-attacks I think it's still one of those you know sort of teething problems with the new coach that Sometimes people are out of position or not quite sure where they should be in a certain moment. 
And it was something in the first half that Dortmund did pretty well. The second half, and obviously it doesn't help. You're still playing a Munier's first game of the season, Guerrero's first start of the season, Axel Witzel isn't a centre-back, and Manu Akanji is there playing like Superman, trying to hold everything together at the minute. Yeah, it was a little bit shaky, a little bit wide open. And I mean, you know, it's twofold. It means that you're open to counterattacks, but it also means that when you have possession, if you're not in the right place and not controlling the space properly, then you leave yourself open to losing the ball and not being able to get out of your own half as well and, and much easier to press. So I think it was, yeah, like I say, it's not something that gives me like a huge concern going forward. I think it was mostly kind of teething problems under a new coach and it was disappointing to see it after a good first half. But yeah, I mean, Hoffenheim were for the first 20 minutes of the second half, I think clearly the better side. Yeah, most definitely. And uh, I, I, it's interesting though because I feel like the momentum switched with the goals, you know, the the way Dortmund did behave. Because once Baumgartner scored the equalizer, uh, I thought Dortmund very much took over again. You know, then they were pushing and mm. pressing uh, again, like you would expect. Um, even though he scored the first goal, I totally agreed with uh, Girena being the first substitute in like the 64th minute for Julian Brandt because I want to see Julian Brandt. Uh, very desperately perform well and the only way he can do that if he's actually on the pitch so uh he got a good what 25 ish minutes or so uh what what did you make of his uh general uh run out that he got and how his uh substitution impacted Dortmund's game to the positive and negative I think it was a bit of a classic Julian Brandt performance I think like you I want him to get those chances because I think he's a amazingly talented player and you saw that in moments you the the relaxed nature that he has on the ball I think you know Gio Reyna is always trying to do something with the ball which is not a bad thing but like you said the decision making becomes a bit of a problem well, sometimes he just takes the ball and tries to run through a wall and just doesn't doesn't happen you know that's what exactly like it's like you don't have to score a goal with every possession or you don't have to beat two men or come up with a brilliant through ball this is going like to be the weirdest analogy the now on my behalf but uh you know if you play rocket league and i don't know if you do but uh you know there's a certain skill level uh, where you manage to control the ball and uh, you know uh usually players especially not the not the best ones as soon as they have the ball they just try to boom it upfield and uh, when you get a little bit better, you just try to control the ball and not boom it away to, to the opponent, if you will. And I feel like Girena sometimes needs to just step on the ball and, and uh, circulate possession and not try to make a, a Hollywood play every time he, he receives the ball. I mean, it's right, it's, gotten, the... it's gotten better yet, but I, I still think, uh, you know, there, there needs to be a little bit more... Uh, uh, I don't know, reading of the game, but it's coming, it's coming. You know, he's still very yeah, young. I think he's young and I think he gets excited, basically, like like a poppy. Or, you know, he he always wants to make a difference, which is really, really good. Um, but there are, there are two sides of it. You know, you can get the ball and speed the game up or you can get the ball 
and slow the game down and there are right times to do each of them but he tries to speed the game up every single time that he gets the ball i mean we have um, players that are on the complete opposite of this that spectrum aka yeah. axel witzel yeah. so you know i'm not gonna yeah, complain well, but, like every player needs to be able to judge which moment to do which one um yeah and that's a uh, you know like it's like you, I also think that that's got better already this season. I think that was a really big problem for Reina last season. And I think he's been a lot more impressive this season so far. Um, well, it has to position. be. <laughs> Sorry? I said he has to be without Jaden Sancho. Well, and, you yeah. Know. But he's, he's stepped up so far. And uh, I think this position really suits him. Um, playing on the left of the diamond and there's so much space in the half space with the fullback staying completely wide and Marco Reus drifting around in front of him helps distract opposition defensive midfielders and drag them away in open spaces so I think it really suits him I think it suits him the teammates that he has around him as well and it's a really nice way to to try and use Reina and get the best out of him but Julian Brandt was the right choice because he does also slow the game down. And when you're 1-0 up or 2-1 up, you just need to sometimes calm down and recycle possession and keep the ball and make the other team run around and chase you and don't let them anywhere near you. Whereas Reyna obviously wants to invite pressure so that he can beat it. Um, obviously, the best way to avoid any kind of pressure is just avoid it completely and then you don't have to worry about it as a problem and you can stretch the other team more and more across the pitch Brandt brought a bit more of that um he also if you ask for the negative side as well he you know looked like Julian Brandt where he comes on the pitch and then two minutes later he kind of isn't sprinting to make a challenge or run into a space that he could occupy because he's just way too laid back half the time but you know this is kind of just also one of those things that you have to take the the flip side of the coin when you have a player who is really good you have to take some of their bad parts as well he just needs to cut them out and make sure they're a little bit less frequent yeah you, you know how uh players are nowadays wearing uh these uh almost like sports bras for their <laughs> tracking, you know? I, I feel like William yeah, yeah. Brandt needs, needs an electric shocker in there somehow that uh, <laughs> he gets zapped every time, you know, he's caught napping. Uh, I, I, I think this is this is an upgrade that's probably somehow doable. I don't I don't know if it will agree with German labor laws, but you know, no yeah, that was that was going to be my question. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think... So it's only a problem if somebody finds out about it. Yeah, or he signs a waiver or something that he's okay with it. You know, we'll, we'll, I, th I think for his own good, he just, sometimes he needs to be zapped a little bit. You know, <laughs> because I don't know if you remember, because I do remember quite uh, vividly that when he was on the field, that Tessage almost like individually coached him. You know. <laughs> Last yeah, and season in, that, that uh, every every five five seconds he would hear Jule, <laughs> off gates weiter yeah, weiter Jule and stuff like <laughs> that. And yeah, it was probably unfortunate for for Brandt that that was all going on. Obviously, when there was nobody in the stadium as well, yeah, yeah. so this enormous issue was just there for everybody to hear. Exactly, but uh, yeah, nevertheless, quite excited uh, about him, and I I really do think 
that this diamond shape does suit him well as well and the, the position he's played. You know, I, I recently, I don't know if I made it on air or, or off the air, I, I feel like in this system, you know, Mario Götze wouldn't be too shabby either. <laughs> but obviously, uh, yeah, uh, those those chances are long gone now. But uh, yeah, anyway, there's yeah, still... Just, just about him fitting in and the, you know, the system working for him, I think... We've seen him play wide, or we've seen him play as a number 10 as well uh, at Dortmund. Um, but personally, I always thought his best football came when he played in the in the kind of um, in the pivot, the double pivot in front of a back three, which was not really viable when you only have a four man defense and to play Brandt as one of two players right in front of them. But then you play with the diamond, it means he's one of three midfielders in front of a four-man defense. So there's that extra protection for those moments, you know, that he doesn't get electrocuted to do some of his defensive work. <laughs> yeah. Now, what what I also really like about this shape, and I'm I'm sure that uh, teams will figure it out quite soonish, but uh, for now, I think Dortmund centre-backs really do manage to find the channel straight to, you know, Akanji to Reina or Witzel to Bellingham. You know, it's it's gotten uh, already a little bit less uh, since the Frankfurt match, but uh, I still think um, that actually really helps in Dortmund's build-up, that uh, the channels into midfield and into the center are very much often open due to Dortmund's positioning. And, uh, you know, we have really good centre-backs when it comes to passing the ball forward. So um, over the season, I uh, hope this is a theme that continues to, to happen. I mean, if you have, be it Royce, who also drops back a lot... You, Reina, Dahoud or Bellingham and, you know, Brandt and who, who else will rotate through that midfield, uh, be it Witzel at some point. I, I really do think that at least in terms of first or second build-up phase, Dortmund are actually uh, quite golden. So um, this is something I do look forward to as the season progresses. But uh, for now, I think it is also time to talk a bit more about uh, Daniel Malen. I know we've talked about him briefly in the beginning, but... um. Let's juxtapose that with Haaland's performance because except for uh, obviously that uh, furious finish, I don't think Haaland had such a great game. Uh, meanwhile, Marlon, I think, was a bit more involved actually and uh, his positioning and his flow of the game was, was you know, really cool. And I think maybe it peaked with that back heel tackle <laughs> way one possession and then uh, forced the yellow card. But... Uh, how how did you view him in a, in a sort of uh, team chemistry way and his binding to the match? Yeah, really, really well. Uh, like I already said, I thought it was, and as you said, it's a low bar, but I thought it was a huge improvement on, on the Freiburg game. I thought that it was a really impressive performance. So you, we talked about the decision-making of, of Reina, for example, and I thought Marlon was making the right choices at the right times, when to dribble, when to pass, when to, you know, maybe have a shot. And he looked like a, a player who can definitely really fit in with Dortmund and, and the way we want Dortmund to play, but also more importantly, the way that Marco Rosa wants Dortmund <laughs> to play. Um, you it know, could he, be the same way. The, <laughs> well, yeah, it could be. Um, I guess there's a big overlap there anyway. Um, but he, you know, he has the ability to to pick a pass. He's not selfish as a striker, which is always a bit of a bonus. But he also 
takes people on. He drifts wide, which when you play with the diamond without any wide players, it's so important to to have strikers or a striker at least who is going to drift all the way into the channels and be able to beat the fullback or combine with the combine with our fullback, our wingback on the overlap. And he did that really well. I thought there was a couple of really good moments in the there was in the first half. He, he combined with with Reus and and Reina down the left, and Dortmund nearly had a goal out of it. I think Reus actually probably should have had a penalty. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I totally forgot where, about that moment. Yeah, and, and there was kind of, it was weird. Like no one seemed to appeal. Like oh, you know, it's Marco. He goes down a lot, so it's probably nothing. Um, but yeah, I thought so in the stadium, and then seeing the the replays again afterwards, um, I was really surprised actually that there wasn't a bit more fuss made about that. Um, it looked like a pretty clear penalty to me, and and there was a lovely counter attack in the second half, um, maybe from a well from from Hoffenheim. I can't remember if it was a set piece or if they just had possession in our half, but. You know, Royce charged away and Holland dragged one defender to one side and, and Royce played it to Marlon, who who did really well to get the ball out of his feet and not slow the attack down and, and force Bauman into a good save at the near post. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I was happy with the signing anyway. I think we signed a really talented player and I think already after two games to see that there's a there's an obvious way that he can fit into the team and he seems to be sparking those relationships with some of the players already i think it's really really promising it's like yeah when obviously when you spend quite a bit of money and especially on a an attacking player there's so much pressure instantly and people are always waiting for the first goal and the first assist and you know those signs that you've signed a player who can win you games and Obviously, he hasn't done that yet, but I think this was the first time that we saw really obvious signs that he can be a player that can win games. Yeah, what I also really like to see is his shooting technique because he has a really powerful right-footed shot that you uh, struggle to read. You know, you, you saw it that he does not really need to swing his leg a lot to get this power. I, th I think both of his shots were to the short corner and Bauman had it covered. But uh, I can see a lot of Bundesliga goalkeepers being uh, taken by surprise by such a shot. Or it just, you know, uh, whizzes in. Uh, I personally am a sucker for uh, <laughs> goals that are scored at the uh, at the uh, near post. So um, that's uh, that's something I'm I'm very much looking forward to, especially if it can pull these off uh, against the, the motion of the keeper or something like that, you know. Um, it's obviously something that Jaden Sancho did excel in, in the uh, sort of unreadable shot, if you will, that just, you know, was like a snap. And uh, yeah, having this characteristic in Marlin as well and seeing both of those go absolutely on target where he wanted them, uh, you know, it's uh, it's nice. So, you know, I don't I don't want to uh, spend too much time talking uh, about Daniel Marlin because, you know, it was only just his... Uh, first game where we saw some positive glimpses but uh, you know uh, when Haaland lost a bit of connection to Dortmund's game for, for a long part maybe that's uh, uh, the, the blameless also with the players behind him uh, I, I thought we, we should you know point these things out at least but um, yeah and especially having lost Jadon Sancho and even with Jadon Sancho last season there was times where it was like if Haaland had an off day then you didn't see where anything was coming from. Um, so to to have an inform Royce again, 
and the midfield functioning behind and to have another striker or, or forward who looks like they can connect with the team and deliver maybe when Holland isn't having his best day is just, you know, it, it really restrict or cuts down on the reliance that we might have to have on him this season. Yeah. So obviously uh, the big negative here is that Dortmund after three match days have conceded six goals and three of them were all set piece goals. And uh, after Jude Bellingham, my word, what a strike. Uh, <laughs> really hit that perfectly. You know, I think it was just a poor clearance and his shot got a little bit of a deflection on there. But, uh, you know, uh, I think he had to be subbed off a bit later. And then Marius Wolf came on, who, by the way, uh, looked also really decent. You know, uh, mm -hmm. it looks like he went to Cologne and actually improved, <laughs> which I find hard to imagine, but at least... The glimpses we've seen for 18, 19 minutes, however long it was, uh, were, were really good. Um, but obviously, uh, after the Bellingham goal, the same thing happened again where Dortmund were more on the back foot and then, uh, I don't know, uh, invited the pressure or wanted to counterattack. I'm not quite sure. It, it looked more of a Favre football, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, yeah, just protect what you have instead exactly. of instead of killing the other team off. Yeah, which is weird because you can see uh and and let's let's put this in the positive column because usually teams once they've gone into the uh let's protect what we have mode as you just put it, they find it very hard to flick the switch and uh push for another goal again, but Dortmund did it twice basically. And mm -hmm. that's obviously very positive, but nevertheless, uh it it also hints at the potential that Dortmund could have in the uh, attacking uh, or overall uh, approach to the game. You know, I appreciate when Dortmund tried to circulate uh, possession and control the game and not, you know, go all guns blazing. But uh, in, in Frankfurt, I praised, uh, or against Frankfurt rather, I praised when they uh, just circulated possession and uh, took a breather. But uh, against Hoffenheim, it was not really uh, like that at all. It's just Hoffenheim having a lot of the ball and uh, probing Dortmund, obviously nothing you really want to see. And, uh, and yeah. Gregor Kobel. Yeah. stepping up in a huge way a couple of times. I was just going to I was just going to segue through that and uh, once again uh we we Apologies. No, no, fine, you can also just take over because uh Kobel has taken over as well just uh, sweeping off the yellow wallpot horse before he could even get his word out. <laughs> so, uh <laughs> what did you make of this performance? Yeah, it was huge. Um, he didn't have that many saves to make. Uh, I think he's already made in, in what, three Bundesliga games. He's already made quite a few really good saves. Uh, there was there was one or two in Freiburg already. Then, I mean, the, there's this one save in particular. Um, I think I think it was Kramerich, mm -hmm. um who, who, who ran almost yeah half the length of the pitch, almost one on one, and. What I really, really liked was that Kobel didn't commit to anything. Um, so often you see the players in these positions and the goalkeeper comes charging out. Like, no, it was actually the, the 15 minutes minute. I'm so sorry. Because I, I, I think it was <laughs> right before the the Baumgartner goal. Right, yeah, it was. Um, but yeah, I think so often you see keepers come charging out and... 
yeah, it's it's not the best way to approach the situation. Like I can see, I you I can see the logic. Obviously, why goalkeepers do that? You want to come out and make yourself big and close the angles, uh, but so often it leaves them unprepared for the shot. And it, I mean, something that that was always something when I was growing up that you heard was like, don't let the striker make the decision. Um, or, or don't make the decision for the striker sorry like force the striker to decide and, you, and when a goalkeeper comes out it it puts the striker in a position where okay easy we can you can go around the goalkeeper you can chip the goalkeeper there's there's space to catch the goalkeeper out with a quick shot obviously as well being closer to the ball the keeper has less time to react to a shot and Kobel looked so relaxed and just confident and prepared and just stood there and let Kramaric make the decision. Okay, he's not come out, so what am I going to do now? Um, I, th- I thought it was really, really great goalkeeping. It was the kind of thing that, that you see really often from Mamor Neuer, who when he's not charging out of his goal in, in those situations to, to come and intercept a ball actually stays pretty close to his goal and, you know, within the six-yard box to force the striker into the decision like that and give himself as much time as possible to firstly prepare and then react to whatever happens. So I thought that was so impressive. And we saw, yeah, another good performance. He's pretty relaxed, which I think is really huge for a goalkeeper to not give stress to the players and not give this impression of being stressed and panicking or anything like that to the other players. And yeah, it's been really, really promising so far, early days, but it's been really promising. And I thought this was probably his best performance so far. Were you among the people that chanted his name after the save you just described because I heard Gregor <laughs> yes, Kobel chants going through the stadium. Yes, uh, yeah, um, absolutely. There was a little bit, but then the ball was still in play, and then I think it went out for a, for a corner or a throw in or something, and then it got really loud. Um, yeah, yeah, it, and he completely deserved it, and it, it does go through your mind as well. Like when a player's played in an empty stadium now for almost two years, pretty much, or eighteen months. Like what that must feel like for him to to immediately get this kind of adulation, but also it must do enormous things for your confidence at a new club, especially to I don't know get the feeling that you're already convincing people um, of your ability. So yeah, it, I do. It was a really a really really nice moment to be back in the stadium again and kind of give that and, and I don't know kind of thank him for making the save like that. Yeah, I think it's also really an expression of relief from a lot of Dortmund fans to see a competent goalkeeper. It's you know I don't I don't want to harp too much on Berkey because I still think he's a really good goalkeeper. But you have more of a feeling that Kobel is a goalkeeper that really can win you a lot of games, and especially the the, the sweeper keeper aspect, which I have raved about in the last episodes already. Um, Uh, is huge and you I think had a couple of situations again against Hoffenheim where he was uh, really far out of his goal and and made plays and uh, it's something you really just love to see uh, you know where counterattacks get killed off and all of a sudden you know on your tv screen on the right or left side there this keeper just pops up and and clears the ball and something you usually as a Dortmund fan are not used to because neither Birki nor Hitz uh, do that Um, so 
yeah, that's obviously fantastic. And we'll talk about Kobel uh, again uh, in our uh, transfer summer assessment, of course. But uh, yeah, so how was it uh, when uh, Dortmund scored uh, the, the third? I'll just uh, bluntly ask. I, I can play the clip again if, if you want, because it's so nice to listen to. Marco Reus. Haaland stays on his feet. What a chance for Wolf! Mukoku! Haaland! He's a cheat code! Three, two! I mean, the way he picked his, <laughs> his, his, uh, place, Haaland, you know, because the defender easily could have blocked it. Uh, and and just completely lashed it into the goal. So how how was that watching it all unfold from the north stand? So right, I think you you had a really good angle on on uh, the flight of the ball. Yeah, pretty much more or less behind. I guess a bit more central um, to to where for like the angle. I guess being right behind the ball where he shot. But yeah, a really clear view of of what was going on. Um, Oh, I get it's just one of those moments as a fan, right? You just have pure relief. And uh, I remember thinking and, and talking with people after the game and just thinking when we conceded, which, by the way, like, which wasn't only, you know, a classic sad pieces, but also like the exact same fucking goal that we let in from a corner all the time with a near post flick on and then a guy is free at the back post. And it, it, even from you know from before Marco Rosa, constantly that exact same corner cone last season. I remember, I think, really late in the game and yeah, Frankfurt well a couple of weeks flicks. ago. Yeah, two in one game, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and and Frankfurt, um, their second goal a couple of weeks ago was exactly the same. It's it's like this exact same way of conceding. Not even keep conceding from corners, but it's this exact same way of conceding from a corner over and over again. Um, which is so infuriating. Um, and then, yeah, I, I just remember thinking, like, the I think it was right after when they were kicking off that the announcement was for four or five minutes at a time. And I just remember thinking, yeah, that, like, we'll, we'll get a chance. There, there will be one chance in well, that there four There were actually five two minutes. chances. Well, if you, if well, you, yeah, if you, if you count the goal, the chances are on the goal. There were four. Because Wolf had the yeah, chance, Mukoko right. had the chance, and Haaland scored, and then Marco Royce had another really glaring chance, which he needs to score because I predicted the game to finish four <laughs> to two. Jesus Christ, Marco, why can't you aim? Why? But yeah. Well, yeah. So I thought I thought we would get the chance, and then there was the save from Wolf, and I thought, oh, right, that's not great. And then it felt, but you could see it was falling to Mukoko, um, and then that was, you know, I thought he did really well to get it right towards the bottom corner and, and Bauman made a great save and then Fantastic you're just thinking to save. yourself of, of course he was yeah, the who and then, scored team of the week freaking Bauman of course he was obviously obviously and then you just think to yourself well there it was that was the fucking chance that I was thinking we were going to get um, and Haaland just kind of yeah muscled his way into it and as you said he, the way he picked his spot was brilliant like that's not an accident it's he could have hit that anywhere. Um, he's he knows that the defenders there. He knows his best. Bauman's on the floor. His best chance is to hit it high. Um, <laughs> my instant reaction when he hit it was like, "Fuck!" He's managed to put it over. Like I just saw the trajectory of the ball and was 
absolutely terrified and certain that he'd managed to from what three meters out smash it over the bar um you and know it's hilarious the because at the pace the ball is being hit it's maybe a tenth of a second it's actually flying but uh, the human brain is capable of thinking like 50 it's thoughts <laughs> yeah it's in it's really incredible when you when you actually think that like how, yeah like you say how quickly it happened but the thoughts that we all have while the process is happening it's absolutely insane um yeah and also it's damn impatient i wish my brain could just let me wait you know that tenth of a second so i could just celebrate and not have the stress of thinking that it went over the bar for you know that well, wait yeah. i wasn't sure point, the entire time whether Haaland came seconds. or came because he was in an offside position before whether he made it back in time that was my big yeah, concern see, i that didn't even it didn't even cross my mind until you know you kind of you're screaming in celebration hugging people or whatever and then you turn around and you realize they didn't kick off yet which when how long did that take i feel stadium, like it took forever yeah i like i don't even think it was that long it, like it was way quicker than the offside goal against frankfurt that was given i think um but it felt like it took ages um yeah I, and then it's yeah it, when you're in a Bundesliga stadium nowadays and you celebrate a goal and then you realize they haven't kicked off yet, then obviously you're just completely stressed and worrying <laughs> that they're going to steal that moment from you. So thankfully it didn't happen. Thankfully we did win and, and it counted. And yeah, it was a pretty nice way to start the weekend, no? Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I'm I a big fan of Friday wins because that uh, always gives you the permission to watch the rest of the uh, Bundesliga match day, if you will. And I, I must say, there were uh, some really great games on the recent match day. We had, uh, for example, <laughs> uh, Stuttgart losing to Freiburg, uh, where all the five goals came in the first half, actually. Um, and uh, that sort of surprised me. You know, we had... Uh, you know, Freiburg actually managing to hold off Stuttgart uh, for the entire second half. Uh, no surprise by mine speeding 3-0. Um, the most comical goals, I guess, were scored in Augsburg. <laughs> where... Yeah, they had a cactor competition. Yeah, basically. Yeah, you had the you had the first really nice lob, then you had this deflected header. But I, I, I still actually thought that uh, the first Augsburg goal and the only Augsburg goal... Um, was even funnier because of the the poor first touch and then the ball sort of going through Hadeki's legs, and yeah, yeah, it was like everything was in slow motion yeah, and there was. Like, everybody's scrambling towards it. That was that was great. Yeah, and as you say, when you can sit down and just in enjoy that and not really care what happens because we won anyway, and you're not sitting there thinking, oh man, now the I don't know. Of course, Bayern punished our defeat or Leverkusen or Wolfsburg or whoever um, punished us not winning. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's just a really nice feeling to relax and watch whatever happens at the weekend and laugh at whoever doesn't have any luck and none of it's your problem. Yeah, I mean, I really did enjoy also Cologne against Bochum. I thought it was a really good game, especially because the, the goals came really late and after Cologne scored their second, Bochum I think they had like four minutes of uh, of stoppage time, but Bochum played like they were uh, still 100% getting a point out of, the, out of it. And they did have a uh, uh, a goal and then I think one more chance. So um, 
Bochum with the never say die mentality. That's a mental note I'll, I'll put somewhere for the Bochum game. Obviously, Bayern rotting Berlin was uh, really boring and I didn't watch that game. Uh, Union Berlin against Gladbach also hardly watched because uh, I was watching uh, Formula One not racing in Spa because it was raining and uh, I also couldn't bother you to really, watch. You chose to watch cars not race against each other instead of Union <laughs> Gladbach. Yes. Well, I, I did I did watch Union Gladbach uh, for uh, four minutes and I did watch the uh, Avoni goal live where Kruse and okay. Avoni combined against uh, three Gladbach defenders and uh, it was it was a beautiful goal. Um, but yeah, uh, I also didn't watch Wolfsburg against Leipzig because I was doing other stuff. I don't even remember what it was. Uh, but I That's didn't. a good enough reason to, yeah. to not watch those two teams. I, I don't know. Uh, even if it was the battle for the uh, for first place uh, on match day three, I just could not really care. Uh, but <laughs> I'm I'm okay with the outcome, uh, uh, even though I think I I very loudly uh, proclaimed that Wolfsburg were not to worry about and that they're going to be shambles under Mark van Bommel and Fronsek. But here they are, top of the league. Uh, so yeah, whatever. But uh, every every time Leipzig loses, I think it's also a, a very good time. So, um, yeah, obviously Dortmund will play after the international break against Bayer Leverkusen, which uh, I assume will be the automatic loss for Dortmund since uh, Leverkusen are in really good form and Dortmund play away from home. And it's after the international break where Dortmund always struggles. So, um, anyway, but we'll preview that game next week. Um, now, uh, Lewis, I think quickly it is time for us to talk about the Champions League draw and Dortmund uh, got a really nice group uh, with Sporting from Pot 1 and then you have uh, Ajax and Besiktas. Uh, should be fun. Uh, also, Dortmund obviously must finish in the top two. Uh, do you think Dortmund are the favorites to win this group or do you think that Sporting or Ajax are actually formidable enough to do- to give Dortmund some trouble? Mm, yeah, I would say Ajax in particular. Um just with the the pedigree that they've had in Europe for the last few years again now, um, almost throwing back to the old days. And they obviously tend to dominate the Eredivisie. I think in Eric Ten Hag, they have a really good coach and they just have a really talented team too. So it will be, I think there will be two really interesting games against Ajax. I think Sporting are a good team as well. They won the, the Portuguese league for the first time in like, something like 15 years last season. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, but they, well, I think really, really solid team. They just sold the star teenage left wing back to PSG on deadline day. So maybe that helps weaken them a little bit. It will be a huge disappointment, right? If Dortmund didn't go through this group and, and maybe even go through as the winners. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I I rate Ajax really highly. I don't know what to make of Sporting. I really don't know what to make of Besiktas. Uh, but fear not, we will have uh, expertise coming to help us out there. So, um, you know, but just a general reaction. I think there have been tougher groups. You know, Bayern, for example, have to play against Barcelona. Um, so that should be fun. But uh, yeah, obviously it's broke-ass Barcelona right now. So I don't know if they even <laughs> still have a good team. Uh, by then or whether all the remaining good players will be impounded. (laughs) Who knows? But uh, yeah, Uh, 
I'm looking forward to this Champions League. I think it will be very exciting, uh, and I think it will be very dramatic. Uh, I I know Dortmund will not just you know cruise through their group stage because they just never do. There will always be some excitement. Um, so yeah, um, that's that's it with the group stage because uh, we are already an hour in and we still have to talk about the transfer window. So um, let's talk about the players that Dortmund lost. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I've have the uh, transfermarkt thingy open. Uh, I don't know if Emmanuel Ferrei really counts because he never was a <laughs> first team player. Uh, Lukas Piszczek probably one of the biggest losses just because uh, how, how tremendous he was uh, on the field and obviously also off the pitch. Uh, Sergio Gomez uh, signed for Anderlecht and Jeremy Tolian uh, with Asuolo, but neither of those played a role last season. Thomas Delaney uh, of the Sevilla for reported fee of six million. Uh, Leonardo Balieri also permanently signed for Olympic Marseille, but obviously also didn't play a role last season. And then of course, 85 million euros plus bonuses. Uh, Jane Sancho going to Manchester United. So, um, considering what kind of summer Dortmund had, this is a very short list. Uh, what do you make of the uh, transfer window in terms of Dortmund that players sold or uh, got rid of? Yeah, I think all of those names were to be expected pretty much. There, w there were no surprises there, which you know is nice when you have to build and plan for, for your squad building. Lukas Piszczek is, as a person and a player, going to be an enormous lost there's an enormous hole at right back which we already kind of touched on yeah Pishek is yeah 36 years old came into the team last year and was brilliant um and not even not just brilliant by the standards of how badly other players had played at right back he was he looked like Lucas Pishek five years ago it was I don't really understand how it happened um and I think it's a uh, I'm happy for him that he got what he wanted. I'm kind of disappointed as a fan that he maybe didn't decide late last season, oh, maybe I could do one more year in Dortmund um, because that would have been great for, for all of us and to give him a real goodbye as well at the end of this season would have been special because he obviously missed out on that last year. Um, I'm sure he'll be back to, to sort of receive that as soon as possible. But... There was not a big surprise. Thomas Delaney with one year left on his contract. I think maybe people will be a bit disappointed by six million euros only, but I don't find it that surprising. It was not like a situation where loads of clubs were bidding for him and we were in a pretty weak position with one year left on his contract. And yeah, I mean, I don't see him fitting into this team anyway. I think the the two eights in the diamond are really offensive players and players who can dribble and create chances and, and get in the box and, and threaten like we've already seen and spoken about with Reina and Bellingham. Um, and then I think Delaney just doesn't have the ability in, in the build-up play to play the role the Hood is playing at the moment and that Witzel will play, I'm sure, at some point. So that wasn't a big surprise and, and not too much of a disappointment again a big miss as a person i would say and then there's Jaden sancho who obviously as a footballer is practically irreplaceable um but we held on to him for one extra year kind of compared to what it could have been so that one extra year brought us the the Bukai and a place in the champions league this season 
thanks to his performances after sort of December or January this year. And then we still got, what, 85 million euros for him or so. So I think it kind of was one of those things that was always going to happen and has worked out pretty well for everybody. Yeah, uh, I I would agree. Uh, I think we got the chance to enjoy his talents for pretty much as long as, as humanly possible, considering uh, the level he was playing on when he left. So um, that was really positive, obviously, uh, you know, uh, wouldn't it be amazing if Dortmund had the capability uh, to retain such a player really on the long term, you know, like Bayern, say, Serge Gnabry or, or whatnot, uh, who will probably play there for five, six years uh, fr from now on. Uh, you know, or Robert Lewandowski, etc., etc. But uh, sadly, this is uh, not reality. Reality is also uh, that there are a lot of players that Dortmund did not sell, and I think this <laughs> is sort of the uh, biggest problem uh, Dortmund have right now that their wage bill is uh, quite bloated. Um, uh, obviously, Roman Bürki, most prominent, I guess, of players that did not leave. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know what he will do this season, whether he will assume the number two spots uh, in front of Marvin Hitz or whether he will just uh, hang around on the stands. The, the, the fact that Roman Bürki uh, is still around at Dortmund, at least uh, until the winter transfer market, always gives me a little knot in the stomach because, uh, you know, it, it would be classic, uh, you know, stories that only football writes uh, if Gregor Kobel goes down with an injury and all of a sudden Bürki... Uh, <laughs> has to perform again. Who knows? I don't know. Uh, I don't want to uh, write the devil on the wall, uh, so to speak. But uh, yeah, it's obviously rather unfortunate that Dortmund could not uh, manage to get his name off the wage bill. Uh, there were reports of a, a late offer from FC Basel who might have taken him out on loan. But, uh, you know, I I assume that Berkey, uh makes uh, some good money in Dortmund. I think between five and six million per year, um, which is doesn't put him at the very top of uh, Dortmund's wage bill, but uh, you know it's it's a sizable amount of money you would like to spend uh, uh, elsewhere. Um, other players that Dortmund might have could, wanted could to. Could I sell. ask you just like on that bulky situation, what you how much it worries you, or what you think of the situation where they gave both Bucky and Hits a new contract within the new within the last like twelve months, and then also went and signed a new goalkeeper as well. Well, I'll I'll be honest. I'm very much relaxed about Dortmund's goalkeeping situation now that Dortmund have signed Kobel. But uh, I already thought that at the time when Dortmund did extend Bucky's contract, that it was not the smartest play to make. I'll be honest, uh, I always thought that this is a position Dortmund needed to improve and it was always quite clear that Roman Bürki is a good goalkeeper but he's not Dortmund material. Just never really developed into that goalkeeper that Dortmund were hoping. So um, yeah, I'm I'm quite worried that uh, right now he's just uh, taking away resources that Dortmund desperately need and I think the blame wholly lies with uh, Michael Zorg and the... Uh, decision making because I thought that this uh, contract extension was quite needless and I assume he still got a raise in that somehow too and uh, yeah now it's uh, obviously not getting easier for other clubs to sign him I think he wants to play Champions League football somewhere um, and be the number one goalkeeper but I just uh, struggle to to see a market for him you know uh, 
Yep. So I I don't know how you see it, but uh, I think his contract runs out in 2023. Uh, who knows how how long uh, he will he'll hold on to that? <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess we'll find out in in January at the earliest if he's just fed up with not playing any football and maybe somebody really needs a goalkeeper somewhere. But like you say, the wages is so prohibitive when it when it comes to getting rid of not just him, but a few of the players Dortmund failed and tried and failed to get rid of this summer. Yeah, it's really annoying. Dortmund are in the category of clubs where uh, your wage bill is not big enough to retain the biggest assets that you have. But it's also so big that uh, if you have, uh, say, mediocre players you want to get rid of, uh, that you pay these players such an amount of money that... Uh, other clubs from your own league or around uh, really do struggle to uh, uh, sort of take on these players and, uh, you know, either these players need to take a big pay cut or they will just stay on. You know, basically something that yeah. Dahoud did for four or five years, but, uh, you know, in his case, it actually turned out uh, as a positive, but uh, so often it does not. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you... I think you saw that quote from the the agent of Marius Wolf, mm -hmm. um, yeah, which just kind of sums up that situation, right? Uh, saying that you can't give up a contract in Dortmund because it will finance you for your entire life, pretty much. I mean, that's exactly that situation that you just described. The club has put themselves in a really difficult position where if you want to sign a guy like Roman Burki or Marius Wolf from decent Bundesliga clubs but obviously coming to Dortmund they expect a wage increase but then the wage is too much for any decent Bundesliga club outside of maybe the Champions League teams to be able to offer that player a similar contract you know it, it would put them kind of in the bracket with their the highest paid players at, or at anyone else in the league so Yeah, it's um, it is a really. It's, I think it's a difficult situation to juggle, but then making mistakes in player recruitment becomes costly, not just with the transfer fee, but then you get stuck with a player for a number of years, bleeding more and more millions out of the club as well. Yeah, there certainly is a knock-on effect, uh, for sure. And uh, I think we can praise Michel Zorc in so many ways, but I also think there have been uh, some absolute duds where Dortmund really do pay a lot of money. Marius Wolf, uh, who could have a very positive impact this season, you know, it's still too soon to say, but uh, I think he is also on a wage um, and and where, where you just don't uh, really know why in the first place he got offered that much. Because I, <laughs> I think Wolf and Schulz both, for example, are players that are not necessarily Dortmund material. I just don't think they have the technical capability to uh, compete at that level and uh, they're good backups but uh, of course Schultz was signed for 25 million and uh, I think in Wolf's case it was a um, uh, extent uh, some sort of clause that don't want triggered for 10 million or so but uh, yeah uh, it's it's still uh, not the best transfer policy I don't know I feel like Zorg really struggles in in, recru in recruiting like players that are not at the highest level but just mid-tier squad players where Dortmund often overpay and uh, you know especially experienced Bundesliga players that make sort of almost a lateral move 
don't want just uh, often screw up. I mean, Delaney, for example, was one of the few exceptions, but even he is not, uh, you know, 100% liked among Dortmund fans. I think a lot of Dortmund fans were quite critical of him as well. Anyway, uh, you know, I, I this to me really is the, the biggest downside of the transfer market that in the end Dortmund, I think, wanted to do a great many things, but just couldn't because uh, of previous mistakes. Right, I think this is sort of my assessment. Yep. If if we give a rating to this transfer window, um, I don't know. I'm I'm somewhere between four out of ten and five out of ten, somewhere in between, like four and a half out of ten, maybe, because uh, it's a knock-on effect of of previous things that maybe prevented another winger. I don't know what was going on with the whole uh, Hudson-Odoi thing. No idea. Um, whether Tuchel actually blocked the transfer, which I find quite credible or not but uh, yeah <laughs> you know don't worry we're linked with a lot of players also Madueke for example uh, and I would have appreciated another winger that can dribble with the ball I think Dortmund do need that and uh, yeah so so there are a certain issue uh, a couple of issues did not address but uh, of course do you, th- do you think maybe that wasn't so much of a priority because we're going to play with a with a diamond or maybe with a with the back three sometimes, possibly. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, th- I think the and priority basically just lowered, play without but... wingers, Or do you think we're going to play without wingers because we don't have any wingers? Uh, I, I just believe uh, that no matter which system you play, you always need to have wingers that can beat other players one we want. And yeah. if you have a lack of that in your squad and if you're aiming for a title or whatnot, which Dortmund maybe possibly potentially are, I don't know, but if you want to be sort of the top brass uh, in the top European league, I absolutely think you need a player like that. And Dortmund just don't have uh, this type of player right now uh, to the uh, uh, to the amount where, where it's necessary. I think after losing Jane Sancho, this is one particular area that has not been addressed really. And I think we'll bite Dortmund quite often. Uh, that's just, you know, obviously playing in the 4-4-2 with a diamond may alleviate that. Um, but nevertheless, I still think that sometimes in a dull game, somewhere in the middle of the season, you just need a spark of individual skill individual skill to, to win your games and to win us with 1v1 skills often do that. So, um, yeah, I would have appreciated another... Uh, play like that but uh, it's obviously not feasible right now I think in a non-pandemic year uh, easily Dortmund would have a gotten more for Sancho and B had more uh, players to invest and also there would have been more of a market for players they wanted to get rid of so that always needs to be factored in right but uh, nevertheless uh, I I get the point of everyone saying well Dortmund maybe don't need uh, that winner per se I I really uh, harshly disagree with that notion yeah, that's why I was wondering if you kind of thought, yeah, we would play without wingers because we don't have wingers, or we didn't, we don't have wingers because we're gonna play without them. Um, I agree, I do agree with you. Like it's probably now that we signed a goalkeeper um, and and upgraded really in that position, and Akanji has had such a strong twelve months or so. I think there's still obviously they made the temporary solution with Pongracic at centre-back, <laughs> but that was a big question mark. 
and right back, I have sympathy for them not signing someone because I suspect they don't want anybody to get in the way of Matua More when he returns and, and someone to kind of block his path to, to taking that spot or having the chance to earn that spot. And then when you kind of take all of those things into account, then the winger is the big thing that's missing from the squad. A squad that last season, you know, I, I think Ansgar Knauf is a good player, but I think he's also not really ready to play much in the Bundesliga yet. And even then, in a couple of appearances last season, we saw what a difference it can make to have that one-on-one player that you're talking about, even if they aren't maybe the top level or... Yeah, completely but just, just an explosive player yeah, you can just, bring on in the last 20 exactly. minutes can make all the difference. You're absolutely right. I think, wasn't it against Stuttgart or so, where this assist uh, away? Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, and, and yeah, the just just it just needs one moment uh, to, to win you those games sometimes, and those are typically the kind of players that deliver that one moment. Um, I, I think, like you, that we might see Marius Wolf at right back as a possible option for the for that position and to solve that issue of of not having maybe a, a quick 1v1 kind of player but obviously if we're using him there then it proves just even more that we really could be doing with someone extra who can play on the flanks and offer that yeah this is a, this is the problem with Marius Wolf you know he can be a good stopgap player but uh he's not good enough uh, technically to be a winger for Dortmund. Yes, he impressed against Hoffenheim in the runout he had, but I think in the long term, uh, there there are much better players with a much better first touch <laughs> than Marius Wolf. Um, obviously, I appreciate his um, work rate and the physicality he brings, so it's, it's not like he is completely useless. I don't want to go that far. But uh, if you, you know, start thinking about, okay, we can play him as a winger, we can play him as a fullback, um, you know, to me, he is not the best option as a, as a right back. He might be an upgrade over Paslak uh, if Paslak is struggling as he was, but uh, that doesn't say much to me. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, I'm I'm right now. I'm happy he's there due to the injury malaise that Dortmund do have. You know, with Emre Can being out and whatnot. Uh, same with Ansgar Knauf. Obviously, I, I think we'll see more of him this season as well, and maybe he'll alleviate my winger pain. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but uh, Only a little bit. Yeah, only a little bit. I also don't really know what we'll make with Khanir this season. Um, no idea. So in, in, in that regard, it's it's really disappointing. But uh, I am truly excited about Daniel Malen, and I'm even more excited about Gregor Kobel. Uh, I... I teased this a little bit, but I just wanted to say this again. I think that Dortmund are set with Kobel for the next, I don't know, five to six years, unless uh, he plays so well that uh, another club just poaches him from Dortmund uh, to, I don't know, a club with money. So it's not going to be Barcelona at least. But um, <laughs> I don't know about you, uh, Luis, but uh, my big idol growing up was, of course, Stefan Klos and uh, Jens Lehmann was also tremendous fun. Uh, so and, and Roman Weidenfeller also became a world-class goalkeeper. So I, I think Dortmund are a club that absolutely need to have uh, a world-class goalkeeper or goalkeeper that is, is, you know, at least way above average. And I do believe that Gregor Kobel is that guy. You know, maybe he'll... <laughs> 
he'll have the yips all of a sudden and just makes a mistake after mistake after mistake and I'll have to revise uh, this remark now but uh, I just don't have uh, that notion for now and uh, I'm super excited about him because I think he will tremendously balance Dortmund's team, make them better uh, in the long term and uh, really help with winning games and maybe even championships, who knows. So um, that's my take on Gregor Kobel. So however shit this transfer window was in the larger context, I think having Gregor Kobel in particular is uh, something I will always look back to uh, for things that made a really big positive difference for Dortmund. So um, having him there... Uh, is great full stop i i really it's refreshing to hear this level of optimism from you so i'm just sitting back and enjoying that (laughs) i i i think uh it's warranted you know i've been wrong many times and i will be wrong again but i think this time i'm i'm correct (laughs) so uh, (laughs) that's the problem you never know when you're going to be wrong i know i know that's uh that's the beauty of it but yeah uh, Marian Pongracic is obviously uh, the stopgap player. You know, he was uh, a roster player in, in Wolfsburg, and uh, I don't know. I think it's an un- understandable thing because you know he and uh, Rose go back to the Salzburg days, and uh, you know he had real, really stiff competition with uh, Lacroix in in Wolfsburg. So uh, I don't really have much of an opinion on him other than that I have a hunch that Dortmund will rely on him quite heavily this season and it's a much better option than Witzel in uh, the centre-back position because um, he actually is a trained and learned centre-back. Uh, <laughs> think about that. So I think Dortmund have an option to buy for like 10 million. So if it works out, uh, grand. If not, whatever, it's Wolfsburg's problem. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm just uh, hoping that uh, he will be somewhat formidable and head Dortmund out in uh, in the centre back position. I only really remember him uh, playing against Dortmund, where he was not too shabby, to be honest. But it's also not a standout player by any mean. So, you know, it's uh, it's for, for last minute panic buy. I think that's about as good as it gets. You know, uh, there there were rumors about Diego Dallo from uh, Manchester United, from uh, AC Milan right back. Uh, obviously, this would have been more spectacular, <laughs> if you will, but also more unrealistic. You know, the uh, Dallo and um, Hudson Odoi rumors I never really took seriously because I thought that was... And, and way more expensive as well, even just on loan, yes. just to, to pay the wages of players at, at those clubs. And this, yeah, I kind of, I like this deal because it's just, in terms of a last minute deal, like the worry, I guess, is always, um, firstly, that you're going to buy a a terrible player, but also that you're going to waste a load of money, but to manage to do it on loan is pretty nice. And also a player who played for Marco Rosa before, so knows exactly what's going to be expected of him. And also the coach already knows exactly what he can expect from the player. Um, hopefully just makes the entire transition a bit smoother for everybody. Yeah, I think he's playing for the Croatian national team, but he was born in Lansud. So he's, I, I guess he has dual citizenship. Uh, must have. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I, you know, who knows? We'll, let, let's uh, wait and see a couple of months. Uh, I said previously that I do have the fear that uh, Hummels in particular will struggle tremendously with injuries and uh, who knows what will happen with Zagadou so uh, 
I think this is a very much needed uh, reinforcement and uh, I'm happy Dortmund did make this transfer even though it obviously reeks of desperation because it just is that. But we all know, that's what I mean. If if, if you're going to make a desperate transfer, at least make it a cheap one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree. So, uh, Lewis, I think I rated the transfer window with the uh, number. What would you give this summer? transfer window um better i think better than you i think i think i would give it a five or a six okay. like i think if you consider that the problems getting rid of the guys like Burki and, and wolf were problems that existed because of previous decisions and not decisions made this summer um then maybe you give that a little bit more leeway yeah, but I didn't I, feel I'm like really... going back to previous ratings that I first of all didn't give and then like take take <laughs> off a number. So it's just gonna well, be I, it's I'm, just yeah, gonna I'm be just trying misrating. to add, add the context, I guess. Um <laughs> yeah, I like I don't I, it looks bad, but I don't know if they could have like you said, the the pandemic market and clubs not having as much money and empty stadiums, I don't know what they could have done differently to get rid of some of the extra players they couldn't get rid of. Um, I'm yeah, I'm pretty happy with, with Kobo and I'm optimistic, like not, maybe not as optimistic as you sounded, but I'm pretty optimistic. And I think it's always nice to have a goalkeeper where you're pretty convinced that that's going to be the goalkeeper for a number of years. And I am like you, I think it's the worst position to have those question marks about. It leads to so much uncertainty. And, you know, it's not a position where you get rotation or anything like that. So You know why I'm maybe so optimistic? Have... It, it might just be my own psychology because I feel less jittery, less panicky when the ball goes into that area of the pitch. Especially the sleeper pretty... thing. It just takes away so much uh, nervousness and stress just for me as a viewer that I'm just so I excited. I think that's a good way of... Of judging a goalkeeper yeah yeah it does like it, it how totally does do they make you but <laughs> but you just know? just having a um, better fan experience i think just uh you know makes us transfer better <laughs> yeah yeah completely and yeah and i'm really happy about donya marlin as well i think i think you know it's a new transfer and an attacking player and different movements and different teammates and it can take a while for those things to to click but I think when they do click, then we've got a player that everybody's going to absolutely love watching. You know and, what my favorite aspect about Daniel Marlin's transfer actually is? It's that he was not no, born in the 2000s. You know, that he's already 22 <laughs> years old. Yeah, but I'm, I'm just saying. So Dortmund will have him and, you know, when he's 23, 24, 25 and uh, not the youngest anymore. So my expectation to that extent is that he will actually... Uh, be a more consistent player uh, uh you know obviously uh there is this reputation that he whiffs a lot of chances but nevertheless i i do feel like uh that a lot of learning has already been done in his regard mm -hmm. and uh, we get more of a peak performance out of daniel malin that we might have out of other players say for example christian pulisic who um since he left Dortmund, i think improved still tremendously and is now a much better player than uh he ever was uh, for Dortmund. I know that pains you, especially since you're an Arsenal fan and he's playing for Chelsea. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I still feel like uh, it's fair to make that point. So I'm I'm hoping that we'll get this 
development from Marlon Moore, Dortmund, and uh, say at PSV. Yeah, and we don't we don't have to suffer those growing pains as much exactly as as with some of the other players that we've signed. I think that's true, and I think yeah, I think it's really exciting. I think he's going to fit in really well. I think he's going to contribute to a lot of goals. I would have really liked if we could have signed, uh, I mean, a right back, a winger, uh, a centre back. <laughs> but I, yeah, I think the the situations were probably just a bit tricky in in each of those positions, especially when you see the that we have Mounier on a huge wage, and then what do you do when Murray is eventually fit again? If you go and spend loads of money on a right back, which I guess is why they were looking for loan solutions. And I'm just glad that they managed to sign some kind of centre-back in the end after worrying that the failure to sell a guy like Marius Wolf would maybe prevent us from having anybody come into the squad after after Kobo and Marlon. So I'm happy that we've got a centre-back like you, that he's not Axel Witzel playing centre-back, but we actually have a guy who is just a centre-back and maybe not the guy that anybody would have chosen, but... It's worked out pretty well for Dortmund before. Some pretty surprising left field announcements and and guys that we haven't really seen or heard of. I mean, obviously, this uh, transfer window also was a investment into the future. You know, Dortmund did sign Samuela Kulibali and uh, Abdullahi Kamara. You know, Kulibali is the centre back uh, who I think is still nursing an injury, and uh, Kamara is a defensive midfielder. They're both from uh, PSG's under-19 uh, joining Dortmund. So uh, obviously, uh, I, I very much doubt that Dortmund would see those, you know, 17 and 16 years old uh, at any point this season. But, uh, you know, going forward, they could also play a big role. And then I might have to go back and mark up this transfer window a bit higher. But, um, you know, you, you just said that Dortmund had several issues to address and uh, maybe the goalkeeper one was not the most pressing issue to address. And the fact that they, despite the fact uh, that they, you know, could have more invested into a winger or a right back or what have you, uh, that they still said, okay, this is the time to pull the trigger on Kobel and just sign him uh, despite uh, many other issues. I'm I'm actually quite proud of that decision because, uh, like I just said, uh, I really do think in the long term this uh, will be huge while other things I think can be corrected quite easily and uh, finding a good goalkeeper for the long, long term um, is not that easy. I don't think the goalkeeper market is uh, what it was when uh, you know the likes of Ter Stegen, Leno uh, and uh, Neuer came through the ranks. Uh, so it's, I, I don't know. So I'm I'm just I'm just happy with this development overall, and with that I feel like we can also knock it on the head. Unless you have any final thoughts? No, thank you for for inviting me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're very welcome. And you may now plug yourself if you have any uh, things to plug that people should uh, subscribe, follow, etc. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at LG Ambrose and. <laughs> Seeing as Stefan just mentioned subscriptions, I just started during this new season. I thought I would write something once per week about something different in German football every week. So Bundesliga, national team, Zweite Bundesliga, 
whatever, whatever's interesting, an interesting story or player or anything like that. So um, you can find that on the, the pinned tweet on my Twitter profile at the moment. Yeah, might just tell the link for people that don't have Twitter or go there. Oh, yeah. Well, then I need to remember, though, uh, what it's called, because I just send people the link. Um, <laughs> Fußballinenglish.substack.com Wonderful. Yes, you can follow me, as always, at Stefan Butzko on Twitter. You can follow all of us at Yellow Wallpot on Twitter and Facebook. And if you want to subscribe to our Patreon, go to patreon.com slash Wall. And of course, uh, you can uh, subscribe to the podcast itself on YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, etc. Of course, as always, thank you very much for supporting us financially. Uh, you all out there. And of course, thank you again for coming on with me, Louis. And uh, lastly, thank you for listening and goodbye.